Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. This is the second part in a two-part series discussing the disappearance of Bethany Carrera. So if you have not listened to that first part, I highly recommend it. So this is the first time in a very long time that I'm recording in a somewhat comfortable situation without dogs barking at me and climbing on me, without cats meowing at me and climbing on me, and not being in a very awkward uh, sitting position in a tiny closet. I recently had a great workshop built for me on my property, complete with electricity and lighting and air conditioning by my wonderful father. And just this week had the great and very obvious idea to put acoustic panels up on the walls and turned it into my uh, recording studio. And while I do not have the walls completely covered yet, it definitely is better sound quality than my tiny closet. Plus, I'm actually in a comfortable position, and I won't have to pause the recording every two seconds for a dog barking, which is just heavenly. And next time around, it will probably sound even better once I have the walls completely covered. That was my super fun update on my extremely exciting life, and I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my wonderful patrons. I'd like to thank my newest patrons, Dean and Linda. Both you guys and the rest of my patrons will be getting some goodies in the mail soon. Sorry I have completely dropped the ball on that, so I will make it extra worth the weight. So without further ado, let's get into the conclusion to the disappearance of Bethany Carrera. When we left off, detectives Clinkhart and Hulskoder had just made a visit to Lawson's worksite. He had allowed them to do a cursory search of his SUV, and when they asked him to describe the phone conversations he'd had with Bethany before she disappeared, he explained that she had called him Friday and said she was have a hard, having a hard time accessing the buildings she was supposed to clean with the keys that she had been given. Lawson said he called her on Saturday to see if she had figured out the issue, and she said that she had. Of course, this was completely different from what Bethany's boyfriend Ray had said about the phone calls. When Ray had talked to her on the Saturday she disappeared, she had complained that Lawson had called her early that morning and told her that she was going to help him show some apartments for rent that day. 
She had been annoyed he called her so early, especially on a weekend, and was annoyed that he was having her do this task, which seemed outside the scope of her job. And according to the owner of Branch Construction, Greg Branch, who detectives later spoke to, and who was Lawson's immediate supervisor, he had never told Lawson to train Bethany how to show apartments. It was supposed to be Lawson's job alone. So it was obvious that one of the two men was lying about those phone conversations. And detectives were definitely starting to believe that of the two, Lawson was likely the one lying and hiding something. When Clinkhart and Hugelskoder had visited Lawson at his job site, they had also met a co-worker of his named Franco, who spoke to them at the time, but he didn't have much to offer during that visit. However, later that same day, he showed up at the station to speak with Clinkhart. He had information he wanted to share that he obviously had not wanted to say in front of Lawson. And it would turn out that he had a lot of information for the detectives. He told them how a few days after Bethany went missing, Lawson had mentioned that he no longer wanted to be near the M Street apartments because the police were grilling him about a missing girl, and he said, quote, that he didn't know the fucking bitch. Franco also passed on a story that Lawson had recently told him. He had mentioned that his wife had just left him, only about a week or so prior to Bethany going missing, and he was furious over it. One night he said he went out drinking and took a woman home with him. He told Franco that he had decided to take out his anger at his wife on this woman, and he had beaten her up while having sex with her. This alleged assault had supposedly taken place just a few days before Bethany went missing, and it's a pretty good indicator of his personality. Not only would he do something like that, but felt like it was an okay story to share with other people. Franco also said that after the detectives had left the work site earlier that day, Lawson had dropped everything he was doing and began frantically searching in his vehicle. And then he had abruptly left work early, saying he was going to lawyer up. Now, of course, getting a lawyer should not be seen as an indicator of guilt. In my opinion, you should always ask for a lawyer if the police are trying to talk to you, even if you know you're completely innocent. But beyond that, there was obviously a lot about Lawson and his story that was looking extremely suspicious. Detectives thought that Franco seemed like an honest witness, and he also agreed that he would go on the record and before a judge with the information he had provided, if it ever came to that. Not long after he spoke to the detectives in person, he also called to inform them that when he had seen Lawson a day or two later, at a work site, he noticed that Lawson's Mercedes SUV had been intensely cleaned, like the cleanest he had ever seen it. Franco had even gotten in the vehicle and could tell that it had been detailed. Now let's go into a little bit of backstory on Lawson. He's a fucking slimy sucker, for lack of a better description. Over the many months of the investigation that were to follow, law enforcement had uncovered a lot of information about him. He had previously spent time in prison for drug charges, as well as a charge of aggravated sexual assault. 
Now, this stemmed from an incident in which he tied up his girlfriend at the time and beat and raped her for hours. And for that, he spent just five years in prison. There had also been other accusations of rape against him over the years. And at this point, he had been married about five times that they could find out. And his fifth wife, Patty, was the one that had just left him. During the several months of this investigation, law enforcement set out to interview many people that had known him throughout different periods of his life, and the picture they formed was not a good one. According to several different people, Lawson had been a cocaine addict for many years, and it seemed to be an addiction he was still feeding at the time of the investigation. It made him paranoid and irrational, as cocaine is known to do. And it also just made him a violent fuck-up, with a string of failed relationships, and at least one major business failure. Previously, he and his brother had owned a successful roofing, com roofing company, but partially due to Mike's partying and bad choices, the company had failed. When I researched Lawson in Alaskan court records, I found many lawsuits brought against the company in civil court, as well as many other lawsuits involving Lawson related to other companies. The truth was that despite how Lawson tried to present himself as being successful, with the very nice Mercedes he drove around, and the large attractive house in South Anchorage, he had repeatedly proven himself to be bad at business. But not just bad. He was lazy and he liked to cut corners. And that would certainly come back to bite him in the ass later. Beyond all that, he just really liked getting lit way too much, whether by drinking too much or snorting loads of cocaine. And one former wife of his described him as liking deviant sex. And he was known for his voracious appetite for both drugs and sex. Within a few days, some other witnesses came forward. They were a couple that was moving into one of the apartments on M Street, and they started moving in on that Saturday. At one point, they noticed Lawson's SUV parked at the duplex during the time they were moving. The wife specifically told detectives that she got a very creepy vibe from Lawson, and when they heard about Bethany going missing, they felt like they should report the sighting. A few days after the fire occurred, fire investigators went through the building much more meticulously this time, and they began to realize that the cause of the fire did not seem to be electrical in nature, as they had initially decided. Upon closer inspection, it now seemed as though the fire had been intentionally set, and by now the ATF had also gotten involved in the investigation. Now, I was personally unaware of this, but the ATF has agents that are specifically trained in arson investigation. The agents were there looking through the building, and while they were not quite sure yet exactly how the fire had been started, after their thorough investigation, they had ruled out all accidental causes, electrical or otherwise. Meanwhile, while the various officers were working the case, a large amount of volunteer searchers had been looking everywhere for Bethany, focusing on the many wooded and isolated areas near downtown, and they had also expanded their search 
even looking in places several miles out from Anchorage in all directions. They had also absolutely blanketed the town and missing persons posters for her. You could not go anywhere without seeing her face. But they had found nothing. At this point, Clinkhart believed, with all the information Franco had given him, and his agreement to present it before a judge, it was now time to seek various search warrants. And the DA agreed. The judge also agreed, and they were given multiple warrants. Now I want to give praise to Franco. He turned out to be very helpful in the case. Along with the information he had provided, which he knew could put him at risk if Lawson found out, he also agreed to help out law enforcement by wearing a wire and trying to get Lawson to talk about the case. He really went all out, especially as someone that had no real personal stake in the case. They decided to have him wear the wire as a last-ditch effort to get Lawson talking before they came in with warrants and he likely clammed up. Franco was not only co-workers with Lawson, but they were sort of friends. So they planned for him to go to Lawson's house one day and just hang out and try to get him talking. Meanwhile, of course, law enforcement would be listening to the conversation from a surveillance van parked nearby. Unfortunately, Franco wasn't able to get much out of Lawson other than complaints about the cops, and they decided it was time to move in and present warrants for various things, including his car, house, an auto detailing shop he ran, and where they believed he had cleaned the SUV, and his fingerprints and DNA. They also got a warrant to monitor his phone records. Unfortunately, this warrant would only show incoming and outgoing phone calls, not the content of the conversations, but it could prove helpful, especially since it would also show the cell tower the phone was near when calls were made. Detectives went in, and as previously planned, Franco was brought out of the house along with both Lawson brothers, and they were all taken to the police station, where samples of Lawson's hair and DNA were taken along with his fingerprints. It wasn't until the following Monday when the search warrants for Lawson's house and the detail shop were acted upon. Detectives were especially hopeful about searching the detail shop and Lawson's vehicle, since by this point they believed that she had likely been in it at some point. The vehicle was thoroughly searched with multiple findings that initially excited investigators, but which would all prove to be unhelpful to the investigation. Once the car was processed, Clinkhart installed a secretive GPS tracker in it prior to giving it back to Lawson. He was hoping that Lawson might drive to an odd location and maybe give them a clue where Bethany might be, but at the very least, it would allow law enforcement to track the movements of their now prime suspect. Clinkhart decided to follow up with the witness that had initially called in the fire on M Street early Sunday morning. She was a newspaper delivery woman. He asked her to describe what she was doing exactly when she noticed the fire, and she revealed something new. She said that she had driven past the building on fire and had noticed a man driving past her in a white SUV. And when she looked in her rearview mirror after he had passed, she saw his vehicle park 
just down the road with him still sitting in it. She thought it was odd that he appeared to just be sitting there watching the fire. She described him as being white and in his 40s or 50s with dark hair, but was unable to correctly pick Mike Lawson out of a photo lineup. Klinkert had by now received the phone records for both Lawson brothers and for Bethany, and was able to get an approximate location for each person when they made or received a phone call, based on the South Tower map. He quickly realized he now had concrete proof that the Lawsons had not been home together all day watching NASCAR when Bethany went missing. In fact, there were many phone calls between the two brothers, and he could clearly see they were in different locations. At one point late in the morning on that Saturday, Mike had made several calls to his brother in a very short period of time. Based on the short call duration and how closely the calls were grouped together, it looked like Mike was eagerly trying to get a hold of his brother Bob. The cell tower location for those calls placed him as being downtown, very close to Bethany's apartment. Later in the day, Mike's phone records showed that he had placed other phone calls from the vicinity of the auto detail shop. However, the real kicker were the calls that Lawson made early that Saturday evening, which were linked to cell towers far out of town, at least an hour north of Anchorage. It wasn't until several hours later that his phone records indicated he was now back at his house in Anchorage. Klinkhart had noticed that both brothers made regular cell phone calls throughout most days and usually called each other multiple times. But during the several hours after Mike's phone pinged north of Anchorage, until it pinged back again at his house, neither brother had used their phone at all. Klinkhart speculated that this meant they were driving north together during this time. Time began to pass as law enforcement continued sifting through everything they had found from the warrants trying to conclusively prove that Lawson had something to do with Bethany's disappearance. Weeks passed, and then a month had gone by, with no resolution. Then in June, a family visiting Beluga Point, south of Anchorage, discovered a human torso that had washed ashore. Law enforcement showed up and identified it as belonging to a small female, but there weren't any identifying marks to help them along. Although they saw that it looked like a patch of skin on the victim's back had been cut away. When Klinkhart learned this, he was worried because Bethany's family had told him she had a tattoo of a small turtle in that same location. It would take months before DNA testing showed that the body was not Bethany's. And just a few months later in September, another female torso washed up close to that same area. This was also not Bethany, and these two torso murders are still unsolved. I previously discussed this unsolved case in episode 3 of the podcast. These victims, who were later identified as Michelle Roth and Desiree Linkinoff, were just two names in a long list of unsolved missing and murdered women I discuss in that episode. Klinkart kept slogging away on this case, day by day with no real breaks, until six months had passed since Bethany disappeared. He decided it was time to form a task force 
to help him with the case, and he went big. He recruited some FBI agents, Secret Service agents, and even IRS agents to get involved in the case. The idea was to use their combined resources to dig up dirt on both brothers, which they could use to ratchet up the pressure and hope for one of them to crack. Basically, Clinkhart wanted to fuck with them until something gave, and he had a sneaking suspicion that Bob would end up being the weak link. From everything he had so far dug up on both brothers, it seemed as though while Mike was the aggressive bully with a dirty past, Bob was more of a meek character that was known as being a quiet hard worker. With the power of these multiple agencies combined, they were able to come up with a long list of charges they could throw at the brothers, many of which were felonies, most of which were white-collar crimes such as business-related fraud. With everything they had on them, both brothers could be looking at 10 to 15 years in a federal prison. Clinkard hoped that once Bob realized he was close to becoming a felon on multiple charges and going away for some real hard time, he would decide to save his own skin and throw his brother under the bus. On the planned day, members from each agency gathered outside the Lawson house, ready to take the brothers in and they purposefully turned these arrests into a huge spectacle, with way more officers involved than were actually needed. They even used a battering ram to enter the Lawson house. They wanted Bob to be in unfamiliar and intimidating territory, so an FBI agent and Secret Service agent were the ones to interview him and describe the myriad of charges against him and just how much time he could look at serving. And it didn't really take long before Bob asked for his lawyer. And after speaking to her briefly, she came out and uttered the words they had been waiting so long to hear. Bob was ready to talk. Support for Murder Under the Midnight Sun is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precious engineered tools for your family jewels. And they just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with their most sensitive parts. And now is a great time to see what all of the fuss is about. With my exclusive offer code, Midnight Sun, you can enjoy 20% off and free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com. When I recently mentioned to two of my best guy friends, that my new sponsor was Manscaped, they were blown away because they are huge fans of Manscaped products. With their new lawnmower 4.0, Manscaped has engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and an incredibly comfortable grooming experience. The fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology you will feel supremely confident putting your boys in Manscaped's hands. So check out the Lawnmower 4.0 at manscaped.com and get ready to make me time the best time. And remember to use my offer code, MidnightSun, all one word, for 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Let them know who sent you. And now back to the show. Finally, nine months after Bethany disappeared, 
the truth was about to come out. It had been nine very long months of an intense investigation that had deeply affected everyone involved, and it had been nine long months for the Carrera family, who had relied on their faith to get them through. They had never given up hope and had continuously prayed that somehow there would be a happy ending. Unfortunately, as Bob was about to reveal, their prayers were not going to come true. Bob sat down with Clinkhart and finally revealed the truth behind the mystery of Bethany's disappearance, or as much of the truth as he actually knew. He said that on Saturday, May 3rd, he was asleep when he heard his phone repeatedly ringing. This was around 10 or 11 in the morning, and when he finally answered it, his brother Mike was yelling at him that he had accidentally shot someone and demanded that he bring him garbage bags and duct tape along with large plastic sheeting. When Bob showed up to the duplex on M Street, he found his brother in one of the empty apartments. Detectives would later speculate that Mike had tricked Bethany into this empty apartment by telling her they were going to be showing it to a prospective renter. Bob looked in the bedroom and saw Bethany lying naked and dead on the floor in a pool of blood. Mike had told him that he had accidentally shot her and then flushed the shell casings down the toilet. It would turn out that Bethany had likely first been shot in the shoulder and then a few minutes later she was shot high up on the side of her body. And this was the fatal wound. Bob was horrified by what he saw but he still helped his brother wrap up Bethany's body and clothing and plastic sheeting and put it in the back of the SUV. After they discussed on what to do next and where to take her body, Mike had the idea of taking her all the way to Fairbanks, which is over 300 miles north of Anchorage. But after a few hours of driving, Bob was just too nervous, and he urged Mike to find somewhere off the side of the road where they could leave her. Eventually, they pulled off into a large gravel pit. After searching in the surrounding wooded areas, they found a rise with a hill on the other side where they could roll her body down. They decided this was isolated enough and knew she would not be visible from either the gravel pit or the main road. And so they discarded her naked body on a dirty hillside out in the middle of nowhere, clad only in a few pieces of jewelry. They tossed her clothing in the same general area. After they dumped her body, Mike insisted that they burn down the duplex to get rid of any remaining evidence. Or rather, he insisted that Bob head over, the have, head over to the duplex that night and set the place on fire. Bob did this later that night. But it would later turn out that Bob's attempt at a fire had not taken hold and Mike had secretly returned to the duplex in the morning to finish the job. And this was when he was spotted by the newspaper delivery woman. This was just more evidence of Mike's manipulation. He had continued to let Bob believe that he was the one who had committed the act of arson in order to have something to hold over him. At the end of his confession, Bob made an eerie statement saying, quote, when I'm eulogized, all I want somebody to say is that I stood up and did the right thing. 
I always tried to do the right thing. The next day, several officers and Bob drove north out of Anchorage to go find Bethany's body. The pit was located at mile marker 129 on the park's highway. Since it was now January, when they found the location, they saw that it was covered in several feet of snow that had accumulated over the winter. Everyone had to put on snowshoes to make the trek as they followed Bob. It was a massive area surrounded by trees and deep snow, and as it had been several months since Bob was last there, he had a hard time figuring out exactly where she was. After a few hours looking around out there, everyone was freezing and ready to call it a day. There was so much snow that it was likely Bethany was buried in it, so they knew they would probably have to wait for some of the snow to melt to come back and find her. After Bob's confession, Clinkhart had the terrible task of telling Bethany's anxious family that he now had irrefutable proof that she was deceased. This had been confirmed for him during the confession when Bob described specific jewelry Bethany had been wearing that day, which had never been released to the public. In exchange for the information he had given them, Bob was going to be allowed to plead guilty to the various fraud charges without having to serve any time. But he was mandated to continue cooperating, including allowing law enforcement to record all of his future phone calls from Mike calling from jail. It was not long after his confession that Bob attempted suicide by slitting his wrists. Fortunately, he survived and continued with the plan to try to get Mike to admit to his involvement on a recorded phone call. Finally, one day, Mike called the number that had been set up for this operation. During his conversation with Bob, both brothers were highly emotional, and Mike complained intensely about how hard it was for him behind bars as a convicted sex offender. Super sad for you. But he was also very abusive towards his brother, yelling that he was going to get him locked up for years. Bob played it as cool as he could and kept trying to get Mike to talk about the murder. He said he just wanted to know that Bethany's death was actually an accident, as Bob had originally claimed. And Mike said, I told you, it was a fucking accident. Thus, sealing his fate and admitting on a recording that he had caused her death. Bob then asked why Bethany had been naked, and Bob implied it was so she wouldn't run away from him. Clinkart now felt like he had what he needed to press charges against Mike for Bethany's murder. A few months would go by, and while they waited for the spring thaw, law enforcement was busily working on the case against Mike Lawson. Finally, four months after Bob had shown them the location, the time came when Clinkhart felt like there may have been enough melting for him to be able to find Bethany. He and Detective Hulescoder decided to go up to the gravel pit on their own to see if they could locate her. They wanted to keep the location of the body a secret as long as possible, and thus wanted to wait as long as possible to get a bunch of other officer, officers involved. They really wanted to keep the search low-key until they knew that they had found Bethany. Since the pole off of the gravel pit was right off the highway, it would be hard to keep the location and what was going on a secret if there were several officers in multiple vehicles pulling up to the spot. 
Based upon the description that Bob had previously given him, now that quite a bit of the snow had melted away, it was fairly easy for the detectives to locate the area where Bob said they had dumped her. They walked to the area he had described and looked around. After a while, Clinkhart spotted a few items of clothing that matched what Bob had mentioned. And then Clinkhart found several human hairs strewn about the area, and he knew that he had found the dump site. Coincidentally, the day the dump site was located happened to be May 3rd, 2004. It had been exactly one year since Bethany had disappeared. They quickly got the full forensic team involved to do a meticulous search of the entire area. After many hours of searching, they found some human bones, including a skull and jawbone, which they could compare with Bethany's dental records to make the confirmation. Two days after the discovery, and Clinkhart and Hewelskoter were again headed north on the park's highway, but this time they would be going to the turnoff to Talkeetna, which was only about 30 miles shy of the gravel pit as you're heading north. Without knowing it, the Lawson brothers had driven right past Bethany's hometown on their way to dump her body. The detectives arrived at the Carrera cabin where they made the official notification that they had found her body. The dental records had proven it. They then offered to take the entire family to the site where they had been found. A few dozen officers were working at the site when they arrived and the Carreras, in a demonstration of just how gracious and amazing they are, hugged and thanked everyone on site. Now that they finally had found Bethany, it was time to throw some charges at Lawson. After spending the last year learning what a massive waste of space and overall awful human being that Mike Lawson was, Detective Clinkhart was all too happy to be the one to deliver the news that he would be going down for a long, long time. And so he visited him in the jail where he was currently incarcerated on the various fraud charges. He explained to Lawson that they were going to be leveling seven different charges at him, including first-degree murder and kidnapping. Here is where Lawson attempted a poor imitation of nobility when he said that he wanted to save Bethany's family from the pain of going through a trial and wanted to make sure that his brother would not have to deal with testifying against him. He said that in return... He wanted to be in a federal prison rather than the Alaska prison system. It was more likely he wanted to save his own skin and have the relative anonymity that being in a federal prison would provide, which he would not get in an Alaskan prison for such a notorious crime. It would be years before Mike's case reached trial, but just two years after Bethany had finally been found, Clinkhart learned that Bob had attempted suicide yet again, and this time had been successful. He had been found dead in his running car in his closed garage in the house he had been staying at. He left a suicide note saying he couldn't live with what he had been a part of, and he also could not testify against his brother. This left the possibility of conviction up in the air. Since Bob was supposed to have been the star witness, and law enforcement weren't sure what, if any of Bob's statements, would be allowed at trial. Finally, in the summer of 2007, Mike Lawson's trial began. It took that long to get to trial partially due to the strategy of Mike and his attorney 
to string it out as long as possible. But eventually, they could string it out no further, and he was now going up in front of a jury to plead his case. He had already experienced trial by media, after the story had reached headlines across the country, and would later be featured on true crime shows such as Dateline. As it turned out, prosecutors were not allowed to share any of the information that Bob had revealed directly to Detective Clinkhart, because it was considered hearsay. But they were allowed to play the recorded conversation he'd had with his brother when he called from jail. As it turned out, Mike's own words and their implications were enough to damn him. The jury had the option of convicting him for either first-degree murder or second-degree and they eventually settled on second degree. Now, this is likely because they didn't believe there was enough evidence to prove that he had set out to murder her that day. He was also convicted on a few of the other charges, and received a pretty stiff sentence of 99 years in prison. And going in as a 49-year-old with terrible health did not give him a great shot of ever seeing freedom again. It's likely no one but Mike Lawson will ever know exactly what happened in the M Street apartment that day. But in response to his assertion that her death had been an accident, I have to say, it seems physically impossible for one person to accidentally shoot another person twice in two different locations on their body from two different angles. And I sincerely hope that he contracts a painful disease and dies slowly in prison. Some people are simply beyond forgiveness or redemption and need to simply be removed from society forever. From everything I learned about Bethany while researching this case, it's obvious that the world lost a bright light when she was taken from it far too soon. As I mentioned in the first part on this story, my main source for this episode was Finding Bethany by retired detective Glenn Clinkhart. It is an excellent book, which I've read about three times now, and I have to admit it made me cry several times each read-through. I highly recommend it to those of you who are interested in learning more about this case, as told by the man who helped solve it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I will see you soon.